So we are continuing a sermon series on 1 Timothy, the last chapter of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. So um, sometimes, like, in a week, I just get into certain, certain things pique my interest, right? And the two things that piqued my interest this week, I'm not going to bore you with it, but um, one thing that piqued my interest, certain couple of things that piqued my interest this week. It's called the Frankfurt School of Social Theory and Critical System. That really piqued my interest, right? No? Not Batman, not movies, but the Frankfurt School of Social Theory and Critical System. That really piqued my interest. Why? Because it is the philosophy from this school that has a lot of influence and a lot of cultural things right now, right? So what is the Frankfurt School all about? I'm not going to give you the details, like bore you with it, but the briefly what it is. Frankfurt School is a group of philosophers in the early 1900s, right? That get, it's a group of German philosophers, psychologists, and musical theorists that get together in Germany, Frankfurt, Germany, hence the word Frankfurt School, in the early 19, 1900s. 1923 was founded, and it lasted until 1960s, right? And what these guys got together, and the purpose of the Frankfurt School, they got together, and they just wanted to know, because they, all of them are Germans, they wanted to know why their country is so messed up, right? So remember, Germany, in the, early, in the first half of 19, 19, in the 20th century, what was Germany responsible for? In, 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 in early half of 20th century, what was Germany directly responsible for? World War I, and, and its sequel, World War II, right? So like, they, these German guys were so full of guilt, and they go, why did we do this to the world? And so these philosophers, music theorists, and psychologists got together. And they tried to figure out the solution of, so that the, their country won't do this again. And their solution they came up with was the reason why their country was so messed up was because of unjust systems. Because of unjust economic systems, political systems, because of the man. right? So they got together and they said, you know what? They took Marxist theory. Marx was a German, by the way. They took Marx's theory of socialism, and they tried to apply it to all the different aspects of life. And they're saying, in order for human beings to be free, we need to topple oppressive, suppressive systems. The oppressive systems can be economics, capitalism. They really hated capitalism, right? It can be the patriarchy, right? It can be colonialism. It can be consumerism. They hated consumerism. They hated buying stuff and, and, and technology. So these systems are oppressing people. And so people, in order to be free, must eradicate these systems and make new systems. Or, not, or don't make any systems at all. That's what the Barbie movie basically is about. Barbie movie is a summary of the Frankfurt School of Economics. That's what the Barbie movie is. What the Barbie movie is, let's just get rid of all systems. They get it from the Frankfurt School. So they're saying, in order for human beings to be free, you've got to get rid of systems. 
Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? It should be, because it's everywhere these days. What is wrong with humanity? These systems. Is it, whether it's the patriarchy, I'm sorry, Sean, white people, right? Or, or, or I don't know, you know, like uh, feminism or capitalism. These things are suppressing the people. And people and these things have to be toppled down in order for people to be free. That's the Frankfurt School. Changes of system would set people free. Another area that I was interested in this week is called Christian nationalists. So in response to the progressive thinking of let's topple systems, the Christians came up with the, what you call Christian nationalism. And that's a really a thing. Christian nationalism is the movement that says, let's make America Christian again. Right? Let's, let's elect politicians who promises to instill biblical law in society. So if you like work, if your business is open on Sunday, you're going to go to jail, right? Let's, let's control our borders so that we can make sure only the right type of people can come into our country, right? Let's make our culture Christian. Let's make Christian art, Christian movies. Let's make America Christian again. That's Christian nationalism. It is these two theories are dominant in culture and in Christian culture. Why, what do these two theories have in common? What these two theories have in common is this. They say, the only way that human beings can become better is if you change their external systems. You need to change external systems in order to set people free. There's nothing wrong with you. You just need to be set free from oppressive systems. That's the mindset of the world. Human beings are naturally good. You're just under suppressive systems. Your movies are, every Star Wars TV show is based on that theory, right? Every entertainment, everything is based on these theories. You need to, you need to get rid of systems. But it's not just the philosophers out there, right? We as individuals also believe in the freedom that external, external things can give us. For example, look, money is not just money for us, right? Money, if we, if we think that if we, if we have enough money, then our burdens will be lifted. We will be free from our burdens as long as we have enough money, right? We hope in money. We hope in jobs. We hope that somehow these external things can free us from our misery. We believe the external system called marriage will free us from loneliness. A lot of people are just want to meet someone. I think there's an epidemic of loneliness here in the U.S. And they believe as long as I find someone to love and marry, then I will not feel lonely again. But the problem is this. You know this. The more money you have, the, the more you'll discover, according to celebrities, by the way, the more money you have, you will discover, money really doesn't solve your internal pain. In fact, money injects steroids into your depravity. 
Money doesn't really heal what is internally wrong with you. It just puts steroids on your depravity. You use money to make your life worse. How do you know? Back in the early, like investment bankers in New York before, the, before COVID, if you, if, you, if you ask an investment banker during bonus season at the end of the year when these guys are making, taking $500,000, a million dollars in bonuses, what do these guys do with the bonuses that they receive? They throw parties like animals. You guys saw the movie Wolf of Wall Street? You shouldn't be a Christian. But if you fell and you saw that movie, Wolf of Wall Street, they say, it's true. What do, what do people do with all this money they have? They use it to express their depravity. Marriage. You think marriage is the solution of your loneliness? I'm not dissing marriage. I love being married. But let's be honest, married folks. Marriage, there's nothing like marriage to reveal. It doesn't, marriage doesn't heal you internally. Marriage, in fact, reveals what is wrong with you internally. Am I not right? Marriage doesn't heal your loneliness. In fact, marriage reveals your depravity. Single guys get married. It's not, it's not that scary. But it's just, it's just, that's just the way it is. External things, these things that we hope for, whether it is political systems or economic systems, or whether it is materialism or marriage, all these things, external systems cannot set us free. Churches. People come to church and they say, oh, I'm going to do, do well spiritually. And my church that I'm part of right now is not doing it. Therefore, what I need to be a better Christian is what? Go to another church. That's the same mentality. In order for me to, it's not my fault that I'm not a better Christian. It's the church's fault. It's the external system's fault. And if I just change external systems, then I will be a better Christian. Isn't that how it works? Changes in systems will set us free. Look, there's something, I think, there's something value to Frankfurt School, right? And there's certain values to Christian nationalism. There is. There is. And there's certain value to money. There is. And there's certain value to be, there's a lot of value to be married. I love being married. We should all get married, single people, if you can. But let's call it a spade a spade here. These things will not transform you internally. That's why Jesus in Luke chapter 13 gives you the parable of the yeast. He says the kingdom of God is like a woman baking bread with yeast. I don't, I've never baked bread before in my life. But evidently, you take a little yeast and you mix it with flour and what does the yeast do? It spreads across the flour, and it raises the bread. Am I right? Is that how you bake bread? I guess so. Jesus is pointing. The kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is like a yeast, a little yeast that you put into a flour. You mix it with a flour. And the yeast causes the bread to rise. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is spreading like that. Kingdom of God is not, it doesn't happen when external political systems change. Kingdom of God expands in very imperceptible ways 
But if you give it enough time, you will see it's spreading across the world. What is the yeast that Jesus is talking about? The yeast that Jesus is talking about is his word and his church who spread his word in the world. Jesus says the kingdom of God, the way the kingdom of God expands the hearts and minds of people. It's by individual Christians spreading the word of God all over the world. Individual Christians witnessing to, individu- to, the, to the people around them. And as you witness to the people around them, God changes those people so that the kingdom of God will expand like that. Kingdom of God does not come in a massive system change. It happens as people, it happens with, within people to people to people. Do you understand? It happens like that. And that's the context in which Paul addresses the Christian slaves. We briefly talked about it last week. The first two verses of chapter 6, Paul is addressing the, sla- the, Christ- the slaves in the church of Ephesus. Right? Like, it's, we, like we said last week, slavery was a very, very common social economic system, especially in the Roman Empire. 33% of the population were slaves. Okay? 33, a third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And slaves occupied various positions. Slaves were manual laborers. Slaves were teachers. Slaves were doctors. Slaves were artists. So if you're a doctor... You're a slave. If you're a teacher, most likely you're a slave. If you're an artist, you could be a slave. So there's slaves in various aspects of culture. But keep in mind, slaves are also the very the lowest level of, of, of societal positions. They were the lowest level of people in society. They were all over society, but they were the lowest level of the people in society. And they weren't free, right? They were slaves. Right, for a duration of time, and maybe if you're a foreign slave, maybe for the entirety of your life, you were under someone's, someone's, what's, someone's lordship. So you, you weren't free. Have you, do you know what it's like not to be free? I don't think anyone, Korean army, two years and two months, no freedom whatsoever. You don't eat, you don't get to eat what you want to eat, you don't get to sleep when you want to sleep, you don't get to watch what you want to watch. And everything is, you don't even wear what you want to wear. Everything is regulated. You wear the same outfit every day for every season. The difference between, in the hot days, you get to roll up your sleeves. In winter, they give you a little padding on the inside. It's winter, here's a padding. It's the same clothes, but it's different whether you get to roll up your sleeves or there's padding on the inside. It's not great not to be free. You know? And these guys weren't. So in the human experience, it's not the most pleasant experience in the world to be a slave. What does Paul say to these slaves? Does he say, do Braveheart and uh, yell, am I dating myself to be Braveheart? I don't know. Like, do you find independence? Do you rise up resistance and, and fight for your freedom? Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says, no. What does he say? Verse 1, 
Let all who are under a yoke of bondservant, which is slavery, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. He says, if you're a slave, if you're a lowest man, lowest societal position, have no freedom, what are you supposed to do? Paul says, honor your master. Honor here means deeply respect. Respect your master enough so that that respect will in turn translate over to your performance. Respect your master so much that you will work excellent work for that master. That doesn't sound, right, very loving. It's like, Dad, I told my dad, dad my dad always asked me, how much sleep do you get? I get five hours. My dad says, that's enough. I want to hear, oh, no, you should take better care of yourself. No, my dad says, that's enough. That's what Paul is doing here. People who are in slavery, no freedom. Paul is saying, Paul is not saying, oh, try to get freedom. That's not what he's saying. We want God to say, tell us, I will take, it's okay, just a little bit of a while. I'll take care of you. I'll free you. We want God to say that, but that's not what God says to the slaves. He says, you're a slave. What do you do? Honor your master more. Perform well at your job. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching, teaching here means the gospel, may not be reviled. Paul is saying you should honor your master and work hard for them so that through your service, God's name will be respected and the the truth of the gospel will be persuasive. More important than a person's well-being in this world, Paul's concern, Paul's purpose is be an agent in the spreading of the gospel. Like Jesus' parable of the yeast, gospel spreads through individual church members preaching the word of God to others. That's what Paul has in mind here. How do you, the purpose of your life here, it's not so much of your material comfort, but becoming an amazing witness for the name of God and the teaching of the gospel. This is in direct slap in the face of prosperity gospel. Every Joe Austin sermon ever, right, says, God has a plan for you. It has is a season of promises and what, what, what's his favorite word? I don't, your destiny, right? This year will be a year of change, transformation. He's talking about material prosperity. Paul here saying is, more important than your material prosperity is that you be an agent of the gospel. My dear friends, we are agents of the gospel. Regardless of where we are in our situation, regardless of whether we like our jobs or not, That's a secondary issue. The issue is that you're an agent of the gospel. And like I said last week, how are you going to be an agent of your gospel at your work if you don't honor your place of employment? If you are not a good worker, if people don't respect your work, how would, your, how would your words of the gospel become persuasive in their, 
to the, to the minds of the co-workers. Like I said last week, I manage a lot of people. Not a lot of people, right? But in the last seven, in the last, I don't know, decade of my life, I managed paralegals, right? There, there are certain paralegals who go above and beyond their duty, who can read my mind, who, who, who delivers what I, even I don't ask them, they just deliver. It's amazing. And there are paralegals that I know who are just waiting for me to tell them to do stuff. And then when I tell them to do stuff, you know what they do? They just do the bare minimum of the stuff that I ask them to do. Right? If you're looking at the, I'm not talking about you. Right? Hey, you too. So there's different types of workers. Who do you think I respect more? Whose words do you think will be more persuasive in my, to my ear? It's the worker who excels at his work, who honors me and the firm with his work, her work. Paul says, do that. How is this applicable to us? You are here, and like I said, God's primary calling for your life is for you to be the agent of the gospel especially to your spouse and to your children. And how are you supposed to be the agent of the gospel for your children and your spouse? Be an excellent wife and husband and mom and dad. That's, that's Peter's main point in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. To, he says, to wives who are, not, who are married to non-believers, he says, wives... In the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. He's saying, if you are, Peter is saying, if you are married to an unbelieving spouse, the way you won that person over is not by nagging him to believe in the word. Like my mom, right? But it's being an excellent wife, loving wife, kind wife, kind husband, to, and kind mom and dad to your children and family members. Look, it's a, it's a stereotype, right? Stereotype is a lot of the pastor's kids in Korean churches, they become messed up. Right? We all heard of that stereotype, right? If you're PK, you either are super holy or you're super messed up, right? I don't know how accurate that stereotype is, right? But I think a lot of the PKs go astray because either their parents don't pay attention to them because they're too busy doing ministry or because they're Christian pastor parents. Don't show kindness to them. They go, read the Bible. If you, don't, if you don't memorize, like, if you don't read three chapters, of, three chapters, if you don't read three chapters a day, I'm not going to give you food. Have you heard that? Right? If you don't read, I'm not going to give you food. That's what I did in the retreat when I was a youth pastor. During retreats, if you don't memorize scripture, you, you don't get to eat. That's the stupidest way of proclaiming gospel, Right? It's unkindness of the parents. You, the Christian parent can say, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. But if your children does not know that you love them, 
How is your word, how, how are you going to be persuasive to them? I'm really grateful that I get to have a really deep communication with my daughter, gospel communication with my daughter. And it's because by God's grace, she and I, like, we have this kind of a good, loving relationship. And that is why the words that I tell her is more persuasive. That's what Paul is arguing here. You need to be the agent of the gospel. And the best way that you become an agent of the gospel is to be an excellent person. Do you understand? Verse 2. Paul's talking about in verse 2. Slaves who serve Christian masters. He says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So there are Christian slaves serving Christian masters. And the temptation of Christian slaves serving Christian master is this. Hey, we're both believers in Christ. You're not, you're not better than me. We're equals, right? You know me. I love you. You know me. We're, we belong to the same church. So the temptation is what? I don't need to, like, serve you, right? I don't need to serve you. We're bros, man. Let's, let's go beyond that employer-employee relationship. We're bros. Paul says, don't do that. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. He's saying, if a Christian slave serves a Christian master, he should serve the Christian, Christian master even better than an unbelieving master. Why? Because they're a fellow believer, and you need to love your fellow believer. Just because that person is a believer, it doesn't exempt you from loving that person. No, no, no. In fact, Paul says, love the believing master even more. Because Christians are, are supposed to pour their lives for other Christians. Do you understand? God has placed you, Christian slave, underneath the lordship of a Christian master. And the way you love your Christian master is to recognize the position that God has placed you in and perform that position well. God's definition of love is this. Recognizing where he has placed you and doing where he has placed you well. Being obedient to where you are well. That's the way you love other people. Loving people is not some nebulous, some flowery understanding. Being loving, being loving means obeying where God has placed you and be excellent to them. Look, husbands, the way you love your wives well is not only to do the dishes and take out the garbage and just silently suffer for doing it. You guys, you guys do this, right? You guys do dishes. I know the anger inside. Man, I work too, right? I'm a, I'm, I'm a good guy, right? And like, you suffer quietly of the injustice of the fact that, that you had to work and you also have to do the dishes, the injustice of it all. Man, am I, whoa, whoa, where was I? No. But that's not just begrudgingly loving your wife. It's not the way you love your wife. The way you love your wife is leading her 
as a servant. Women feel loved when you lead them with a servant's heart. Showing leadership in loving her and expressing your love for her and leading her, that's the way that your wife feels loved. Because that's the position that God has placed you in. Christian wives, how do you love your husbands? Respect your husbands. When you respect your husband, when your husband knows that you respect them, on a regular basis, the way he will treat you will change. If you nag him, if you try to like exercise authority over him on a regular basis, he's going to resent it. Your call, wives, as wives, is to respect your husband. The way you love your husband is to respect where God has placed you. You understand? That's how you become an agent for change of the gospel. Serving, being faithful and loving in the station that where you are. And Paul tells Timothy to teach your, teach the Christian slaves, teach and preach these things to the Christian slaves on a regular basis. That's what he says in verse 2. Right? He says, what was verse 2? Where is that? I guess it's not here. But he's saying, Paul is telling Timothy to constantly preach the truth of who the slaves are, what they're called to do to the Christian slaves. Why? Because it is a natural human response of not, that we don't want to do what God wants us to do. It's a natural human response for us to just seek our own comfort. It is a natural human response for a slave who, to, to want to be set free. But the way the slaves see their life in a different way is through the constant teaching and preaching of God's word. And when you are constantly under God's word, you begin to know exactly who you are and what you're called to do. Look, I was sharing this with the in-person Alexandria small group, Arlington small group, the, in the young people life small group. Right now, these days, right, I really enjoy, my, my prayer time is 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. It changes often, but in this season of my life, it's 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. That's when I usually pray, right? And I love praying that, not, that late or that early. Is it early or late? Whatever, right? Because... In that day, I sit down in my rocking chair. I have a rocking chair in my basement. And I get to remember, review, how God has delivered me in that particular day. I do, yesterday, for example, I was so thankful, right? I get to have a really good conversation with my daughter about the gospel. I was really thankful that I got, God helped me prepare this sermon. He really did. I was really thankful that I said something stupid to my wife at Cogieville. But my wife forgave me for the stupid things that I said to her in Kogiville, right? She was like, she was eating a lot. She was like, oh, I go, whoa, right? Right? And like, it's, and unkind things came out, right? Because she was like eating like a teenage boy, right? Oh, right? I, I didn't eat any meat. I just ate two pieces of meat. It's very sad. 
right? She goes, I, I did, I, it's going it's to hurt my hand if I just reach out, right? And, that, and yet she forgave me. I was thanking God for the fact that I don't have a wife who, who's like, who, who's un, who holds grudges, and who forgave me, and who showed me my unkindness. So I review that day of all the ways that God has been faithful to me, of all the ways that God has helped me serve my clients, and all the different ways that God has been. When I review God at the end of that day, in the light of God's word, God becomes alive in me. And when God becomes alive in me, I, I now know what I am called to do and what I'm called to be. Sometimes I'm really, really, really tired, right? I'm really, really, really tired sometimes. But when I review how God is loving me, how God is involved in my life, when I open up his word, when I know who he is, then I, know, then I get a second wind because I know what I'm called to do. That's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Tell the Christian slaves, teach them over and over again who they are in Christ and what they're called to do so that the Christian slaves will be faithful in their station. Do you understand? This is contrary to what the false teachers are teaching. False teachers are not teaching people the sound doctrine of God, which is what is really needed for us to live the Christian life, right? What we need to live a Christian life is sound doctrine. But the false teachers are not teaching false doctrine. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul is addressing the issue about false teachers again. He is going hard on the false teachers because biblically and in Paul's theology, in, in the biblical theology is, Sound doctrine, deep understanding of God, is directly related to godliness, behavior. Godliness is godly behavior, imitating God in our lives. There's a direct connection between our deep understanding of God and godliness. That's what he's saying. The word doctrine here means a system of beliefs based on the word. Based on the word, based on the revealed word, doctrine is a system of beliefs based upon the word. The word reveals there's the doctrine of God. It reveals who God is, his character, his plan, his, his qualities. It re, the word reveals the doctrine of man, what man is, what man is created for, right? What man's eternal destiny is. The word reveals what sin is, what sin is and the effects of sin. The word reveals who Jesus Christ is and why he needed to come and what he offers to us when we believe in him. The word reveals the destiny of the believers and the condition of the destiny of believers. There is a complex set of beliefs and doctrine that the word of God communicates. And Paul is saying, when you personally start to understand these doctrines and the words of Jesus himself in the gospel, you will, it, will directly be, it will directly lead to godly behavior. Listen to me carefully here. 
you will become more godly. Not if you have more spiritual experiences. You, you, you experience, you, your life will change and become more godly as you meditate upon the word of God and you start applying the word of God in your life. Look, when you listen to sermons or when you, listen to, when you read the Bible, just don't read it for information's sake. Put yourself into the word. When you listen to a sermon, you're convicted by a sermon, just don't stay there in your conviction. Think about what this word reveals about you and God. Continuously have a deep knowledge of God. That will lead to godliness. It's true. It really is. But false teachers aren't doing that. What are the false teachers teaching? Not sound doctrine. They either communicate an incomplete gospel or they don't communicate the gospel itself or they add to the gospel. Either they don't, they don't communicate the gospel or they distort the gospel or they add to the gospel. Their doctrines are not sound. This is what I realized about how unsound doctors communicated. You know what they, you know what they do? This is what I realized at 1 o'clock in the morning. All the heretical teachings, they just kind of like take a very one-sided, one-dimensional thing about God. They communicate this one very shallow, one-dimensional quality of God. For example, God is love. They keep on telling you God is love, which is true, right? But they don't, but the word love, what do they do? They they don't explain in detail what the love of God is. Love of God involves his character of justice and righteousness. Love of God involves forgiveness of sins. Love of God involves sin. Love of God forgiveness of sin. Love of God involves perpetuation of Jesus Christ. Love of God is such a complex term. But the false teacher says, God is love. God just accepts you who you are. And they leave it there. God is such a complex It's a three-dimensional, multi-dimensional. There's a multi-dimensional facet to the knowledge of God. But they just give you a sample, superficial sliver of who he is. And think that's enough. You know? It's not completely wrong. But it's shallow. Is it true that God accepts you as who you are? Of course. But does that mean God is okay with you living in your sinful ways? Of course not. But false teachers don't deal with sin. They just focus on, God loves you, man, which is shallow and over the misinterpretation and does not add to any depth to your understanding of God, which in turn does not add any motivation for godliness. That's what they do. Shallow teaching. Paul says they don't, they don't teach sound doctrine. Paul says, what does Paul says? 
they are based on pride and ignorance. False teachers teach false things because they're prideful and they're ignorant of the true God. They don't know the true God and they're prideful. Listen to me carefully. This, I get it from John MacArthur. This, I get it from John MacArthur, right? Biblical pride is more than saying, I'm the best. Biblical pride is more than hubris. It's not saying, I'm the best, I'm better than you. And that's not what biblical pride really is. Biblical pride is the belief that our experience, our judgment, our perspective is more true than the word of God. Pride is thinking, my understanding of things, my interpretation of things, my judgment of things, the way I understand things is more true than the word of God. That's what biblical pride is. John MacArthur says, if you set your teachings up as superior to the teachings of the word of God, that is the epitome of arrogance. These false teachers say, what I understand about God is much more true than what God's word tells about who God is. My interpretation of God's word is more true than the word of God itself. That's pride and that's arrogance. Do you think your understanding of things is more important, more true than the word of God? Is your perspective about sin more true about sin than what the Bible tells about sin? Does your understanding of who Jesus is, is it more, is your, I don't know, this, this bizarre understanding of who Jesus is, is that more true than what the Bible tells you about who Jesus is? It's weird that everyone thinks they know who Jesus is. Even unbelievers think they know who Jesus is better than what the Bible has to say. Unbelievers never have read the Bible, but they think they know better about Jesus than Jesus himself. Let's be honest and truthful. Do you think you have a better understanding about God than what the Bible has to say? With all due respect, maybe that's why you're not reading the word. With all love and respect and love and peace to you, perhaps the underlying issue of you being far away from the word is not because you're lazy, but because maybe you think you know better. These false teachers thought they knew better. And that's why they're prideful. These teachers have also have, is, is based on pride and ignorance, and they have unhealthy craving, cravings for quarrel and division. Because their doctrine of God is more important than the Bible itself, they're really into definitions and words and meanings. Right? Meanings that they concoct, for example. There's this guy named Brandon Robertson. Brandon Robertson, he's a, he's a homosexual Christian, he says. And his entire ministry is to justify why the Bible says homosexuality is okay. Right? That's what he's, that's what he's doing. He's getting a PhD right now. And his whole thing is the Bible allows, you know, the Bible is pro-gay marriage. And in order to justify his position, He's taking 
these biblical passages in Leviticus and 1 Corinthians and Romans, right? He's taking all these biblical passages and he's like twisting the words to meet his definition. His definition of homosexuality in Romans is not gay relationship, but he says Paul is condemning like gay slave trade. He interprets, he interprets homosexuality in Romans 1 as idol, temple, gay sex trade or something. It's weird. He is adding his own perspective to these words to justify his position. That's what false teachers do. They inject their understanding of things into biblical passages. That's why their teaching causes division. That's why, un, that's why false teachers' teachings often stirs up division. These false teachers teach falsely because they have a depraved mind. Once again, they don't know God. They, don't, they have unregenerated minds. And because they, have, they are deprived of the truth. These false teachers teach the way they do because they are, their minds are starving for the truth. They don't know God, and they are, just, they are depriving their minds of the truth. They don't read God's word. Depriving their minds of the truth is they don't read God's word. They don't study God's word. They don't care about God's word. And they're depriving their minds of the truth. They are more into their ideas about God rather than what the Bible has to say because they're depriving their minds of the truth. What is the fruit of these false teachers? Paul says, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. These teachings do not lead to godliness. These teachings lead to sin. Let's come back to earth. I hope I'm not a false teacher. But what do the false teachers have in common with the modern Christian? False teachers teach falsely because their pride, they think they know better than God. And two, they are depriving their minds of the truth. You may not be a false teacher But if you think you know better than God, if you think your wisdom is more valuable than God's wisdom, which leads you to not studying the word of God, you're depriving your mind of the truth. And if you're depriving your mind of the truth and you think your wisdom is better than God's wisdom, then with all due respect, how are we different from these false teachers? You understand? Do you feel spiritually dry? Do you feel not spiritually close with the Lord? The issue is not me or embrace. It's, I don't think it is. It, it isn't. It is because we are depriving ourselves of the truth. And there isn't a church in the world that can substitute you reading God's word and discovering who he is 
if you don't open up the word and let him in. No church can believe for you. No church can constantly, consistently motivate you to read the word. They, no one can. I give you three years, and you get sick of the church. If you are spiritually dry, and if you're not godly, it's because you're depriving yourself of the truth. The Christian life is not supposed to be lived in such a defeated, just weak state. It is to live with vitality and purpose and with deep fellowship with God and experiencing God on a regular basis. That's how the Christian life is supposed to live. Christian life is not supposed to be this limb thing. It's not supposed to be this, like, impotent, limp reality. It's supposed to be filled with life. And experiencing the miracle of God, and that can happen to you. But the way to that place is not you finding a better church, but it's you filling your mind through the power of the Holy Spirit, the deep things of God. I promise you, study the word of God. Not just read it, study it. Look how it is applicable to you. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And I promise you, you will see God. And your spiritual life will be vital. Do you understand? Let's pray.